Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Adding a statue of a woman now would be like adding Elvis Presley to Mount Rushmore, or maybe we should paint the Statue of Liberty day glow pink to make the women happy. y'all and welcome to unladylike where we find out what happens when women break the rules i'm Kristen, and i'm caroline and this week we might not be dedicating a whole episode to day glow lady liberty statues but we are talking about breaking the bronze ceiling yes we are caroline and for folks not familiar with this term the bronze ceiling is basically the public monument version of the glass ceiling we hear about all the time in the workplace. And Caroline, I actually think about the bronze ceiling anytime I'm driving to your house. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) Don't you? (laughs) But I do because we live here in Atlanta and my route to your house happens to pass one of, and I've done the math, Two. (laughs) One of two statues of real women who were at one point alive (laughs) in the entire city. She was this uh, architect. And every time I see her, I fist pump her at first. But then once I'm past, I'm like, oh, well. Sorry, you have no friends. <laughs> yeah, well, which is ridiculous that she is one of just two women statues in the city because there's so many amazing women who deserve to be commemorated. And there are two Atlanta women who could have statues uh, sitting right here. Who? Us. <laughs> well uh copper is one of my colors (laughs) but seriously the bronze ceiling is a global phenomenon yeah i mean based on the premise that women make up you know more than half the global population it's wild how rarely you see statues dedicated to us in the united states alone 92% of our public statues depict dudes. 92%. God, and I bet 92% of that 92% are just (laughs) problematic white dudes. Let's be honest. I like the way you break down stats. Well, in in Britain, of the roughly 1,000 public statues, around 20 of them depict women. 20 out of a thousand, Caroline. Well, but that doesn't count the 29 that are solely of Queen Victoria. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> if you're Queen Victoria, you're good. 
everybody else fend for yourselves. <laughs> and while there's been a ton of necessary attention on taking statues down because of all those problematic white dudes, there are a ton of efforts underway to get statues built to women. Would you say that this whole breaking the bronze ceiling thing has been a monumental task, Kristen? <laughs> I would, Caroline, and that's why today we're going to meet one woman who, spoiler alert, did get a statue built. And through her story, we're going to find out just how much it takes to break the bronze ceiling and why it still matters today. Okay, Caroline, let's meet the lady we're going to be talking about today. All right, we'll go through the drill. I'm Diane Carlson Evans, and I'm the founder of the Vietnam Women's Memorial. Our primary goal was to place a bronze monument, a figurative monument, a monument that looked like women in Washington, D.C. So, Caroline, Diane is a veteran. Uh, she served in the Vietnam War from August 1968 to 69 as an Army nurse. And I wanted to talk to Diane because she led the cause to build the first national memorial to female veterans in the U.S. And just to give you an idea of what it looks like, right, it's a, it's a sculpture in the round with three figures. These women are wearing their fatigues. They're clearly, like, in the thick of action and they're all different ethnicities. So that's the success story. But that, of course, is the end of our story. The beginning starts in rural Minnesota. This is where Diane grew up, and her mom was a nurse. Her dad was, as she puts it, a stoic Scandinavian dairy farmer. And growing up, Diane got one message from her family about women's place in war. Nice girls do not join the army. That's like, I know she's from rural Minnesota, but that's also like the most Southern thing that someone in my family would say. It's, it's, it's Minnesota nice, right? Yes. <laughs> but that whole nice girls don't join the army thing was not really doing it for Diane. All I can think about is, well, if my brothers have to go, maybe I should too. And they must have nurses over there, although I hadn't seen one or heard one or seen anything on the nightly news. So right off the bat, you've got the visibility issue. Um, but in fact, there were actually 10,000 American women in Vietnam across all military branches. And 90% of them were nurses. But women also served in roles from air traffic controllers and intelligence officers to weather monitors and medical support roles. Yeah, and Diane wanted in. I mean, she grew up with a bunch of brothers working alongside them on the farm. So she was used to being able to do what the boys did. She was ready to serve and she wanted to do it as quickly as possible. So she ended up starting a nursing program and found out along the way that because the army had such a dire need for nurses, mm -hmm. that she could actually sign up to join the army as a student nurse. So she did. Well, after I graduated in 1967, passed my state boards, went through basic training, did all of that, they sent me to Fort Lee, Virginia, and I worked there nine months and it was really a good nine months for me to learn about what they had gone through, you know, before they came back stateside. And then in 1968, when she was just 22 years old, Diane was sent to Vietnam. She spent a year there at two different hospitals, 
One of those was in Pleiku, very close to the Cambodian border and very close to the front lines. So I can't imagine that this was incredibly safe or glamorous. So what did being a nurse look like for her? What did she do? In a word, she was busy. There was typhus, there was plague, there was cholera, there was FUOs by the thousands because FUO was fever of undetermined origin. These guys were sick and they were dying of fevers and we didn't know what it was. We had snake bites, we had tiger bites, we lost, we lost young soldiers to tigers. Diane says that she took care of thousands of men. Well, so then what was it about her time in Vietnam that made her want to come home and get the statue built? Well, it all started with this one night at the hospital. Diane was making her rounds, and the hospital starts to get rocketed. And the red alert siren goes on. And so wherever you are, when you hear that red alert, that means trouble, and you better grab your helmet. You better talk about being unladylike. So picture this. Nurses, combat boots, jungle fatigues, flak jackets, helmets. How ladylike is that? But no guns, right? You weren't allowed to carry. The women could have everything except a gun, right? That's right, because they didn't issue us guns because they didn't want women in Vietnam. You know, we could be shot at, but we couldn't shoot back. That was the only difference. On this particular night, the sirens go off, and the first thing Diane does is grab her helmet. Next, she's supposed to help get her patients out of their beds and onto the floor to take cover. Well, the guys didn't have to be told to get under their bed. That's what the first thing they do is you hit the floor. But now remember, they're hooked up to IVs and blood. And they're hooked up that some of them have chest tubes. Some of them are hooked up to uh, ventilators. And they have tracheotomies. And they have all kinds of tubes coming from everywhere. So Diane makes her way around the unit, checking that everybody's got their blood and their IVs. And she's putting mattresses on top of the patients who can't get out of their beds to protect themselves. And now we've got shrapnel flying around because we've been hit. But we have children on the unit who have been injured in the crossfire of war. And I had a little girl who had, her village had been bombed. This girl was part of a minority ethnic group in Vietnam. She lost her entire family. She had a very serious injury. Her entire torso, all around it, had been burned, and what you saw was nothing but um, there was no skin left, and she was in extreme pain. And I couldn't throw a mattress on her, and I couldn't put her under her crib. And so the last thing that I did after making sure everybody else was taken care of was I got under her crib and I just held her hand. Diane made it through the attack that night uninjured. The little girl did not. She passed away, and I say she screamed herself to death. When Diane came home from Vietnam in 1969, she kept working as a nurse. She was doing her best to adjust to civilian life, but there was something she kept hearing on the news and elsewhere that just really started to bother her. It was this debate, mostly among men, about allowing women in active duty. There were all these comments being made on, well, women shouldn't be going off to combat. You know, it'll destroy the mission because all the men will be wanting to protect the women. And I'm like, 
I want to throw rocks out of my window. No, I want to go outside and throw a rock at every man I know who would think that. I was a lone woman on this ward. I was the last person to go for cover. I was protecting the men. And that's what all the female nurses in Vietnam did. But that's not the image that Americans were seeing of women in Vietnam. I mean, nurses were seen as, you know, proper ladies in their clean white uniforms with their jaunty little hats, and they were usually posed smiling at the bedside of some soldier. Exactly. They they weren't depicting Diane's reality. They weren't showing nurses in flak jackets and bloody boots uh, running around rooms with shrapnel flying. Yeah, and so I feel like all of those sterile images are almost even more insulting when you take into account the fact that the war had a 98% survival rate. And you can chalk a lot of that up to the nurses like Diane who were assigned to those active combat zones. Yeah, it's like adding insult to injury. When we come back, y'all, we have a flower garden. Ronald Reagan. (laughs) And Diane? Well, now I'm angry. We're back, and we're in the middle of Diane Carlson Evans' story. She's 23 years old, and she's already been through war. But she has no idea yet how her time in Vietnam will affect the rest of her life. Diane came back to the States in 1969. She got married to this guy named Mike, who was a military doctor. Totally adorable. It is adorable. And Diane stayed in the military for a while and continued working as a nurse. But around the time that she and Mike decided to start a family and they had their first kid, who was a boy, she decided to transition from working in a military hospital to a civilian one. And this whole time, Diane didn't really talk about her experience in Vietnam. The bombings, the little girl, all of that was in her past. But then one day, she was working an evening shift at the hospital. She was waiting for a patient to get out of surgery to take him to recovery. Instead, a nurse came out of the OR and told me to come into the OR immediately. And I said, no, I am not an OR nurse. I am a recovery room nurse. She said, you have got to come. We need, we need you. So I went. Well, there was a small child on the operating room table. And the child was dying. And the surgeon, he's screaming at me and throwing sponges into the basin. Some of them miss the basin and they're on the floor. And all of a sudden, mentally, I'm right back in Vietnam. I smelled the blood, I saw the blood. I'm in Vietnam and I can't function. And now the surgeon is really screaming at me and the nurse is screaming at me too. I'm sure she can't believe what she's witnessing that here's a nurse standing and just is frozen. I am frozen. So I don't remember much after that except going back to the recovery room, finishing my shift, and I never did get the patient because, yes, that little patient died. Diane went home in a daze. She picked up her baby and just held him. I shook all night long. I just shook in a sweat. And it was a horrible, horrible experience. I did not know what was wrong with me except that I had... I was incompetent. So the next day, I went to Human Resources and I resigned. 
After that, I really could never go back to nursing. It terrified me that I would that would happen again, and I did not want to be an incompetent nurse. Diane left nursing cold turkey, and without her career, she began to focus on her family. She and Mike had three more kids together, and Diane stayed home to take care of them. Then in 1982, Diane heard about a ceremony in Washington. It was the dedication of the Vietnam Wall, a memorial commemorating those who died in combat. And without completely knowing why, she decided she wanted to go. Seeing the wall really had an impact on Diane. She stared into its black, reflective surface. She read through the almost 60,000 names, looking for the ones she recognized. Then I couldn't. I couldn't um, deny the fact anymore that I had been there and that it affected me. And then I went into a depression. The way I was surviving was to bury it to the best that I could, but all those memories came tumbling back in 1982 when I went out to the wall, and then I started to grieve for all those soldiers I'd lost, but I still hadn't started to grieve for myself. Two years after the dedication of the wall, another monument was added right next to it to, quote-unquote, complete the memorial. Basically, a lot of veterans were upset over the design of the wall and wanted something more traditional as a tribute to the survivors. So that's what they got, a bronze statue of three soldiers in action. Yeah, meaning a bronze statue of three men. Diane went to the dedication of this statue, of the dudes, too. But this time, she wasn't just grieving. She was angry. They dedicated the statue of the three servicemen. And Ronald Reagan, the president of the United States, said in his speech, We must, as a society, take guidance from the fighting men memorialized by this statue. We have now honored all the men who served in Vietnam. And us women veterans are standing there about to burst into tears. Reagan does mention women, but it's the men's service that he describes. And now it belongs to all of us, just as those men who have come back belong to all of us. Now I'm angry. This is the moment Diane decides to break the bronze ceiling. Using my anger to get people to realize what women had done in Vietnam and what was, be- what was not being recognized. So Diane comes home from this statue dedication and she gets to work. She starts making phone calls and with the help of a sculptor, some lawyers, veterans, nurses, this whole group... She sets up her nonprofit that would eventually be called the Vietnam Women's Memorial Project. So this is where the hustle gets going. It's 1984, and for the next five years, it's a real uphill battle. Diane's organization was trying to build support for a monument, but at every turn, it seemed like, they were met with some sort of hostility. Like, for instance, when Diane reached out to the group that got the statue of the three soldiers built on the mall... They said, good luck, it'll never happen, and we're not helping, and they didn't. They did not help. So I had no roadmap. All I had was this concept of they could do it, we could do it. 
And I just had to keep that in the back of my mind that this was a worthy, worthy effort. And I was not going to ask for anything better, anything bigger, anything more, just something equal. At one point, Diane was actually told to make sure that they didn't make anything taller than the statues of the dudes. (laughs) Statue masculinity so fragile. Yeah. Those years were not easy because the animosity and the anger and the criticism and the the protagonists were all men, and they were vicious, and they, they could be mean. And, and I didn't like it. I didn't like being treated that way, but I was not intimidated by them. In fact, the matter they made me, the more I was willing to fight them back. Diane was continually frustrated, specifically by this lack of knowledge she encountered. People, especially men, were just ignorant of women's roles, not only in Vietnam, but in every American war. And some of our famous politicians would would say things that were just preposterous, like, have they been living under a rock? What about all the nurses in World War I, II, and Korea who died in combat zones, died in their tents when they were rocketed while they were operating on patients? How do they not know this? And it's because they haven't read about it, or they haven't been interested, or we haven't had bronze monuments to portray them in combat. So that was my platform, was to talk about, you know, it's time that we honor women through uh, the same kind of portrayal where they look like women and not, you know, a flower garden with some park benches, which they wanted us to take. That was their consolation? Was Was a flower garden? So that's exactly what was said. Oh, cool. A flower garden for women who helped thousands and thousands of people survive in a war zone. That's appropriate. And that wasn't going to do for Diane. Right. And I mean, ordinarily, getting a statue built is pretty straightforward. It's not instant, but it's pretty straightforward. You put together a proposal. You secure funding. You'll probably have to go before some arts commissions, things like that. But really, it's it's kind of a straight line. <laughs> but Diane's group was trying to get a statue on the National Mall, you know, not just like a neighborhood park somewhere. So that meant even more bureaucratic hoops to jump through. She needed a green light from the Secretary of Interior, approval from three separate federal commissions. And as she would soon learn, she also needed Congress to get involved. Uh, In fact, Diane ended up testifying before Congress 35 times in five years. And then there were the nuts and bolts required, like printing thousands of informational brochures and flyers and just so many Xerox copies. Caroline, I just, I, I, I wonder how many paper cuts were involved <laughs> in the building of that monument. You know, this is before computers and emails and finding things online. We hired a company that would clip every article they could find that had anything to do with women who served during the Vietnam era And so now I'm getting all these clippings in an envelope once a week from this company. And it would get so depressing, I would just sit there and want to cry because it just, this one article said that Diane Carlson Evans is nothing but a radical feminist using the Vietnam dead to further her cause. 
Eventually, in 1987, Diane finally gets in the room with one of those three commissions, the Commission of Fine Arts. And if the commission approves her proposal, that'll be the big step she needs to making this happen. Here's Diane on what the chairman of that committee said to her. We're getting all these proposals. Everybody wants a monument now on the mall. And now we even have one from the Canine Corps. They want to put a bronze statue of a dog on the mall. And if we allow the women to have a statue, we'll have to allow the Canine Corps to have a statue. And I'm sitting there. Did he just say that? Did he just put us in the same sentence? They rejected her proposal hardcore. Uh, Yeah, in like the most insulting ways possible. They couldn't just turn her down. They had to compare her to dogs. So what does she do after that? Well, even though this seems like a very terrible outcome, it actually wasn't. See, a reporter heard about all of this. His name's Morley Safer. And he worked for a little show called 60 Minutes. Mm. And Safer actually had been to Vietnam during the war reporting, and he contacted Diane. And all I, I started to shake, and I thought, I, 60 Minutes? Me on 60 Minutes? That is the most frightening thing I've ever heard. But you'd already testified before Congress, hadn't you? <laughs> and you'd been in a war zone. Now what, 60 Minutes is nothing by this point, right? But 60 Minutes is brutal. And then I took a deep breath and it's like, but they're on our side. So in 1989, four of us nurses were interviewed by Morley Safer. It was stunning. Cool. Detached angels of mercy, always giving aid and comfort, never needing it. When I first started seeing things, I reacted, and I was sick, I was ill. But after about a month, I think our defenses built up, and if we were going to save lives, and if we were going to be any good to ourselves and, the, and our patients, we couldn't react emotionally. And millions so, of viewers are now seeing us. They had, there was film footage of nurses in Vietnam. They were seeing us in Vietnam, in our elements, what we were doing, and then our stories, and that was the turnaround. After the interview, Diane flew back to her offices in Minnesota. The phone was ringing off the hook. Her organization started getting checks in the mail, and it was this whole outpouring of support. And then we'd get letters, like from this little boy, and he sent sent $2. So there's two $1 bills in his letter. And he said, Dear nurses, I wish I could send you more money. And, but if it wasn't for you, my dad wouldn't be here, and he wants to thank you. It was just priceless. And then the, the other one that I'll never forget was from, uh, it was his disability check, and he co-signed it over to us. And he said, please don't ever tell my wife, but I am sending you every one of my disability checks until your memorial is built. And he did. Finally, Diane felt like she had achieved her goal of educating people, getting them behind her, But after her setback at the Fine Arts Commission, there was only one way for Diane to get that monument on the mall. It's going to take an act of God and an act of Congress. I don't know about the act of God, but Diane did get her act of Congress. You know, it took two years, but they passed a bill and said the Vietnam Women's Memorial Project has the authorization to build a memorial at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. After the break, Diane puts one combat boot in front of the other, climbs up the ladder of oppression and sexism, and takes a big ol' hammer to the bronze ceiling. 
Wow. But for real, Diane breaks the bronze ceiling. I mean, she she does it. Don't go away. And we're back. When we left off, Diane had just gotten her bill passed in Congress. And after a few more years of planning and reviewing, she finally got her statue built, Caroline. Woohoo! <laughs> and so on Veterans Day 1993, there was a ceremony on the National Mall dedicating the memorial. We have just unveiled the first monument in the history of the United States dedicated in our nation's capital, honoring the military women who served during wartime. Welcome home, Daughters of America. Welcome home, my sister veterans. There were as many tears as there was laughter, because the, there were tears of joy and there were tears of just emotional tears of veterans coming and reuniting with their nurses. And it was, it was a little bit of everything. But, you know, for me personally, what it was, I gave birth to four children, and that's the biggest joy I'll ever have. That's first. Vietnam was second for me. And then third was giving birth to four bronze statues, which really was painful. <laughs> A longer labor, too, huh? <laughs> it was like, we did it. And, it, it they, and for me, it was like, we did it. Not only that, but they can't take it away from us. It's there. It's permanent. Anything placed on the mall... You know, it's in perpetuity. It's there for future generations to see, you know, that women too were in Vietnam and it's visible because it's that monument. The dedication was a big moment for Diane, a moment of pride. But it was also a moment that took 10 years of personal sacrifice to get to. Because remember, Diane had four kids under 10 the whole time. She had to travel and work. She missed parent-teacher conferences and Little League games. But she told me there were two people in her life who especially helped her get through it. My mother, who retired as a registered nurse, who said to me, Diane, my contribution to what you're doing is I will come. She said, I will come and take care of your kids while you have to be gone. And that was a lot. And the other person was her husband. There were times I said to Mike, I can't do this anymore. I'm too tired. It's too hard. And then just being pushed backwards all the time. And he said, honey, you can't quit now. All these women are counting on it. And it was true. You know what they say about behind every great woman, there's a, <laughs> a rad man, Caroline. A great military doctor. <laughs> yes, yes, named Mike. <laughs> And with her statue built, Diane had finally won that long-fought battle for recognition. But that wasn't all she'd been fighting for. I mean, she was also fighting for herself. Diane says the effort to build this statue was her way of channeling all the anger and trauma she was carrying around after the war. If I hadn't done it, I think my anger would have been destructive. I mean, it's, it's not unusual for any of us to say we have contemplated suicide. And it's it's never been an easy thing for me to admit that, especially now. Uh, and But now I do. For me personally, it was looking out and seeing the women and how this was going to be their healing. And that's the day it started. 
Well, Diane, before we have to go, I, I do want to know what what advice that you would have for women today, um, because there's there's a whole movement now, uh, the bronze ceiling movement of a lot of a lot of women trying to do what you did, try to give birth to more, you know, bronze women. Um, and what would be your your number one piece of advice to someone who's who's also about to set out on? Um, on trying to get a, a monument. I think to it women. would be the same advice for all women everywhere in whatever we do, and that's persistence overcomes resistance. There will be resistance to whatever women want to do when it comes to achievement and coming into positions of authority or power, whether it's military women becoming generals and combat roles, or if it's women in any career or profession, is that we have to persist when and fight for what we believe is right. And I mean, this is so revel- relevant this minute, this day. It's so relevant. Now we're finally seeing women saying, me too. And it, it, it crosses over in everything. You know, Caroline, one thing I realized talking to Diane is how before, of course, I was all about breaking the bronze ceiling, more female statues, rah, rah, rah. But I didn't really get that visceral impact and the importance on a personal level that breaking the bronze ceiling really means. Right. I mean, it sounds like for Diane, having this statue was validating everything she'd been through as a nurse in Vietnam and that that validation was the first step in being able to heal. Exactly. Because how can you begin to heal from something that no one else confirms even existed? You know what I mean? And if we take this even further, having the statue means that there's a permanent place to go, not just for recognition, but also to show future generations. And Kristen, the other amazing part is that breaking the bronze ceiling just encourages more women to do the same. And right now, we're actually seeing a wave of amazing action in Diane's footsteps. In New York, Sojourner Truth and Rosalie Jones are getting statues of their very own, and problematic Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton are coming to Central Park by 2020. All right, we'll we'll take them, problematic or not. (laughs) And uh, Millicent Fawcett, who has been sculpted by a woman, is coming soon to Parliament Square. And you also have some news about a statue coming down. Oh, yeah. Uh, Activists have succeeded in getting the statue of J. Marion Sims to be taken down from its place in Central Park in New York. Yeah, he uh, is known as the quote-unquote father of modern gynecology. But uh, in all of his medical research, he operated on enslaved women without their consent. So there's there's a whole horrific history behind that, and now he's going to go. Right, but there are all of these great efforts going on, and that includes a bunch of efforts at the local level as well to recognize women in bronze. Yes, and, you know, my big takeaway from Diane's story is that we shouldn't wait. We should work to get statues built while the women we're honoring are still alive so they, like Diane, can also have a chance to heal and have a chance to come to a dedication ceremony and celebrate themselves. So let's get more statues up, y'all. And tell us, how would you like to see the bronze ceiling broken? Yeah, what badass ladies do y'all want to see memorialized for all of time? 
let us know. Or, hey, maybe your town already has an incredibly rad lady memorialized in bronze, so go take a selfie with her and send it to us. Our email is hello at unladylike.co, or you can always find us on social at unladylikemedia. And don't forget to go sign up for Stitcher Premium so you can hear our exclusive bonus episodes. We released the first one today, and some of y'all even make an appearance. So go to stitcher.com slash premium and use the code unladylike for a 30-day free trial. Enjoy that bonus content, y'all. And let's roll the credits. Abigail Keel is our senior producer. Production help on this episode is from Claire Rawlinson. Mixing and sound design is by Casey Holford. Julie Suprin is our story editor. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Our executive producers are Chris Bannett and Jenny Radelitz. Special thanks to Nora Sachs and Peter Clowney. And we are your hosts, Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin. And next week, we're getting some very sage advice from the hilarious Kulap Vilaisak. Why would you take a second bite of a shit sandwich? (laughs) (laughs) She's going to tell us about her family, both biological and chosen. So make sure you subscribe to our show in your favorite podcast app so y'all don't miss it. And remember, got a problem? Get unladylike. Two years after the death, two years after the death, sorry, my, oh, this is not working. Okay. Two years after the, the- Stitcher. You sound drunk. <laughs>